we can consider this our uh, New Year's message, even though it's, it's the last Sunday of, of 2020. Uh, those of you who are hoping that just a flip of the calendar page means the woes of 2020 are simply behind us, you could probably think again. Uh, who knows what 2021 will bring? And as we look through the history of the, the church, we realize that, you know, we've had it pretty easy. And if, if things just get harder, it's, it's more like welcome to the club, you know, as you read through Scripture. And it's a very in-house message today. If you're a guest and you're new here and you feel like you walked into a family chat, well, good, that, that's what we are, a family here. And you're welcome. You're welcome to it. But uh, we want to talk truth. We want to talk about what the Bible has to say and how we can be better as a church. And one of those ways I think we can improve as a church, if we wanted to make a New Year's resolution as a church and not just as individuals, right? The thing that you might write in your journal, the thing that you might write on your uh, post-it note to remind yourself that this is what you're going to focus on this coming year, uh, you might want to include something that we can do together as a church, a corporate resolution. How can we be better together? And one of those ways, I think, is prayer. Prayer. Uh, I'm not the best at it. Uh, I wouldn't put prayer, praying, as a top strength of mine. And so the things I have to say today are as much an indictment of myself as, as any of us here. Um, but if we're not a praying church... We're just limping along, really, uh, depending on our gifts, uh, de uh, depending on the resources that God is giving us, more than we are depending on the Holy Spirit to do it. And maybe that's enough for some of you. Come to church, give me a sermon, make sure there's some good songs. Good job, Jake. That was great. Um, make sure that things are in order. And then go about the rest of my week. Right? But if at some point, I think in your Christian walk, there is a switch that happens where you realize there's something bigger than you going on. It's not just about your personal forgiveness. Christianity is about something that impacts the world. And that the reason why we're still here is because there's a mission. There's something we're supposed to be doing as a church. And it's not just running around doing stuff. You know, you can spend a lot of time building an amazing car if there's no battery in it, you're not going anywhere. Right? You can have the best cookware, the greatest cooking skills, graduate from the greatest culinary school. If you don't have a heat source, you're not cooking anything. Right? You're just banging around in the kitchen making noise. You're not going to produce actual meals. So what I want to do is return to the heat source. I want us to talk about, think about prayer we're going to do that by moving through some passages in the book of Acts. The book of Acts. So if you could turn there with me. We've got the four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then right after the Gospel of John, we have the book of Acts, also written by Luke. And we're going to move around a little bit here. So if you uh, uh, are used to just staying in one spot, that's our normal way of doing it. But here we're going to move around a little bit to see uh, the theme of prayer through the book of Acts. And the first thing we need to do is see how the book of Acts opens because it gets skipped. Okay? Now there's this little episode that happens here that we tend to skip. We're very familiar with how it opens. Jesus is going to ascend in chapter 1, verse 6. They ask him if he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He says it doesn't it's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father is fixed in verse uh, 7. And he gives them a promise in verse 8, right? He gives them a promise. We're familiar with that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's, the, there's really the heat source, right? The power of the Holy Spirit is what makes anything effective. I remember one class I missed at seminary. It was a preaching class taught by Erwin Lutzer. And the one class, I forget if I was sick, something happened. I would, that's the last class I would miss as a preaching class. I didn't make it to this one. He took the whole class to a cemetery. 
And he literally asked the students, taking turns, like, to ask the dead bodies under there to come out. And the ridiculousness of that request, he used as an analogy for the ridiculousness of preaching without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot change people's lives. You can't make dead people live. Only God can do that. And the reason why he did that is, hey, we can build preaching skills. But without the power of the Spirit, your preaching isn't going to do anything. So this is what they need. They don't need gifts. They don't need talents. They don't need resources. They don't have to wait for a bunch of money. They have to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're waiting for. Then that doesn't happen until chapter 2, right? Chapter 2, right at the top of chapter 2, your Bible might even have a little title, a little rubric, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's the answer. The Holy Spirit comes and it gives it to them. What happens from 112 to the rest of chapter 1? Well, it's this weird episode that we skip because it, ha- it doesn't feel like a devotional portion of Scripture. We don't really know how to pray it. It's, it's weird. There's 11 disciples, and Luke goes through the trouble of naming them in verse 13. It's Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas. Not Je- that Judas, the other Judas. Why is he doing that? Because he's saying, isn't there a 12th one? Yeah, there was. He betrayed Jesus and killed himself. Now there's 11, and that's a problem. We don't understand why that's a problem, so we're like, what's the big deal? And that's why we tend to kind of skip to chapter 2, at least in our minds or our hearts. It's a problem because it has to do with the founding of the church, the 12 tribes of Israel, now translating to 12 disciples, 12 apostles, that begin the church, that found the church, that get the church started. And the church can't start, and you'll notice the Holy Spirit doesn't come until 11 is restored to 12. Now, we can spend a long time unpacking the the importance of the number 12. Why does it have to be 12 apostles? What do the 12 apostles have to do with 12 tribes of Israel, etc.? But suffice it to say, there needs to be a 12-ness to the founding of the church. And until that's there, they won't receive the Holy Spirit's new covenant ministry, and they won't have power to be the church they're supposed to be. So as they're trying to figure out what to do, they use reason, they use logic. They're like, hey, it has to be a guy that spent time with us, that saw Jesus, spent time with Jesus, saw Jesus' resurrected body. They come down to two names. So it's not that we shouldn't use reason and shouldn't think things through, that we shouldn't have meetings and kick ideas around. That's from the very beginning of the church. They did that. And with common sense, wisdom, they were able to figure out, okay, who, who would be a replacement apostle? They can figure those things out. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they leave it to prayer. It says they put forward two in verse 23, chapter 123, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. These two guys are put forward, and then verse 24 And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you have chosen. And they cast lots. The lots fall to Matthias. I don't want you to miss that very brief mention of prayer in verse 24. Prayer kicks things off. As they're waiting for the Holy Spirit, they prayed. They prayed. The twelveness was fixed. And after they prayed and the twelveness was fixed, then the Holy Spirit comes upon them in chapter 2, and then you get the book of Acts. Now it's action. Now it's the acts of the book of Acts happening after they received the Holy Spirit, which didn't happen until they got the twelve, which didn't happen until they prayed for it. And so from the beginning, the founding of the church, the founding of the church began with prayer. I want you to notice back up in verse 14, it wasn't just a prayer for the choosing of between uh, Joseph and Matthias. Look at verse 14, all these with one accord. Who's all these? The 11 apostles together with, this verse says in verse 14, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Anybody who's anybody is here and what are they doing? They were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. So the church is birthed out of prayer. 
And before they even start whittling down the two candidates, they're in prayer. Prayer starts it off. Again, that doesn't mean you pray and you don't have to think about elder qualifications or who should be a, a person that we commission. No, no, you should be thinking those things, should be doing those things. But they don't just say a prayer, mention a prayer. Verse 14, they were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. And I wish we could get there at CFC. I've been here 13 years. I don't know if we've ever really gotten there. All with one accord praying? All with one accord understanding the need for prayer. Otherwise, church isn't going to be what church is supposed to be. They devoted themselves to prayer. They whittled it down to these two guys. And then in verse 24, you know, I always thought Peter said this prayer in verse 24. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these you two you have chosen. It doesn't say Peter. It says they prayed it. So that even if I stand up here and I say, hey, join with me in prayer, and I'm saying the words, somebody said the words. I don't think they all said the words together. Somebody stood up and said it, probably Peter. But they prayed it. So that when someone's standing up praying out loud, everyone else coming and saying, yes, Lord, that. I pray that. Yes, what he said, what she just said. You're praying together. That's a prayer meeting. And so the church starts off with a prayer meeting before they even have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, and we might be getting out prayed by people who haven't even gotten Pentecost yet. Forget tongues, prophecies, visions, dreams, the things that some churches get super excited about. Forget sermons. Definitely what I get excited about. Not just giving them, but I love, I love listening to them, learning from, from other preachers. Before all of that, they devoted themselves to prayer. So the order goes like this in the book of Acts. Prayer, then the filling of the Spirit, then preaching. Because you remember, the Spirit comes upon them. People in the town hear them speaking in other languages. They're like, are these people drunk? Then Peter stands up and gives the first sermon, right? So it goes prayer, filling of the Spirit, then preaching. I don't wonder if sometimes I get it backwards. I so heavily emphasize preaching and teaching and CFC courses and the thickness, the thickness of the value of what you'll get in a growth group. We don't just like slap questions together. We want you to dig into the text. We're a textual church, the Bible, study the Bible. And that's great. But oftentimes I think, study the Bible, then filled with the Spirit, and then you'll be a praying person. Oops. Pray, be filled, then preach. Prayer takes precedence. It's more foundational than preaching. It's more foundational than Bible study. It's more foundational before the church had Scripture. They prayed. And so the founding of the church is based on prayer, and we can't build CFC on preaching, and I wonder if that's what we've been trying to do for the past decade plus. It's not just us, it's what churches do. Get, get a superstar preacher, and people will come for the preaching. Well, sometimes, now my preaching happens to be of a kind that's very textual, not very feelings-oriented, and so that sometimes has people you know, visit, not come back, or whatever. But do we pray? Do we build CFC on the back of prayer? Or is prayer kind of an extra, something on the side, something that maybe I might get to, something that the super spiritual people who have nothing else to do might show up early enough for? And as a preacher... I feel left in the cold if that happens. Because guys, if you guys aren't praying with me together in it, it doesn't matter how long I prepare a message. It's not going to change anybody. It's not going to change anybody. 
if God is looking at churches and he's going, which ch- I have these people here that I'm working on their hearts, I'm preparing them to get saved, what church am I going to route them to so that they get discipled, so that the preaching is effective for their hearts? Will he choose CFC? I hope so. I hope so. I think we need to mature in that area. I love how this makes it so clear that the doing of church, I mean, it's called acts. Not, not like a play, act one, act two. It's like actions. The actions of the disciples. Uh, many will say, really, it's the actions of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the acts of the Holy Spirit as he uses disciples to do the things that churches do. None of it can start until this prayer meeting happens. Chapter 1 starts with a promise. I want you to go be witnesses. Go do action. And then Luke does a timeout until chapter 2 when it starts. And in between, you have this prayer meeting that fixes the twelveness and prepares them to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that now they can go do. And I think many churches, probably most churches, reverse that. Because we have more people showing up to church to do stuff than to pray. Isn't that backwards? If we have more people involved by doing things than we do have people praying, I think it's backwards. There should be more prayer that precedes the doing. And we could talk about that all day long. We could say, yeah, yeah, that that, that makes sense. And then just walk away from it and another 13 years go by. And it's still a preaching-centered church. Preaching first, hope for prayer, instead of the other way around. Praying first, and then watch what the preaching does. Watch what the growth groups do. That meeting you have, that coffee you have with somebody, you feel like you don't have what it takes to talk to them about the gospel. Watch what happens if we put prayer behind that. These aren't super people. They're not ultra-educated. These are regular people that did amazing things through the Holy Spirit because of prayer. And because of that, we need to devote ourselves to it. We saw that in verse 14, didn't we? All these with one accord, not just we're praying, we're devoting themselves to prayer. I want you to flip over to chapter 2. And at chapter 2, you can go down to verse 42. It talks about the fellowship of the believers. What did this church do? Did they put on programs? Did they have a really cool mops class? What, what did they do? Well, those things aren't bad. You know, we want to get involved. Some of you are just have gotten so excited about the pregnancy center stuff. I love it. I love it. We don't just want to tell single moms, don't have an abortion, but don't ask us for help either. No, we want to help. We want to do that. But if we don't put prayer behind it, what's it for? Now watch this. Verse 42, it's not about programs. It's not about going out and changing the community. Look at it. What did they devote themselves to so that the community is changed? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, as a church, as CFC, I think we've at least got three of the four. We're pretty devoted. A lot of you taking notes. I love it. Come up to me after the sermon. I have a question about this or that. I love that. That's great. And that should not be diminished because they devoted themselves to the teaching. When we have meals, I know COVID has kind of interrupted things, but, you know, the fellowship meals or the picnics, the outdoor cookouts, when we come over to each other's homes for a meal, when we meet at restaurants, that's awesome. That is a Christian thing. We should be devoted to that. Some of you, if you have budget constraints, you should... Cut your budget down in one area to have a little bit of a budget to eat out with other Christians. Devote yourselves to it. Put your budget toward it. And I think we do that pretty well. But they devoted themselves to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the prayers. That can't be left out. We need to devote ourselves to it. If prayer is what makes a church effective, If prayer is what makes anything a church does powerful, we need to be praying. Otherwise, we weaken the efforts of all those other things. We need to be a prayerful church if we're going to be a powerful church. 
Prayer is not the only thing, but it needs to be in the mix, and it needs to be one of those things that we demonstrate we're devoted to. I love when we see the first miracle right at the top of chapter 3. Right at the top of chapter 3, there's that beggar who can't walk, and Peter and John are going to the temple. And it doesn't say they prayed for it. They didn't, it doesn't, Luke doesn't say they were going to heal the guy, but they walked over to the side and prayed. But I, I find it interesting. It says, Peter and John, what were they doing when they met the beggar? What were they doing when they found the beggar? They were heading to a prayer meeting. That's what they were doing. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, some of us, if, if there's a sermon, you know, we're there. If there's a meal, we're there. If it's a prayer meeting, eh. Let's, let's be honest with ourselves as a church. If there's something like a sermon, food, or service, something I could do with my hands, some of us are like, hey, you need a wall painted, I'll be there. I'm a servant. Really great, I love that. But if we announce prayer and there's not people showing up to that, we're missing something here. Wouldn't it be cool to have the kind of, just an ounce of the power that these apostles had? If we're like, look, I, I don't want to just make paralyzed people walk around. Can you just give me the ability to pray over a marriage and see things flip around in that marriage so that the kids don't have divorced parents or functionally divorced? They're divorced in their hearts even though they live in the same home? That's a miracle. Forget wheelchairs. How about marriages? Can we change that? Can we do more than supply baby equipment and food to a single mom? Or can, by the Holy Spirit, some of those single moms get attracted to a place where we have hope that goes beyond diapers? That's not going to happen without prayer. We'll just throw diapers at single moms. For what? They were on their way to a prayer meeting and the miracle happened. Because prayer is central to their lives. We don't have to turn to all these passages, but you know, I, I encourage you, read through the book of Acts and think about prayer. In chapter 16, we meet Lydia. How do they find Lydia? She was saved at a prayer meeting. Wouldn't that be awesome to see conversions at a prayer meeting? What is an unbeliever doing at a prayer meeting? You remember when they meet the fortune-telling girl? That's also in chapter 16, this fortune-telling girl who's possessed by a demon. They eventually cast a demon out of her. They meet her, wouldn't you know it, on the way to a prayer meeting. On the way to a prayer meeting, chapter 16, verse 16. I love this passage. You, you can turn there. You don't have to. In chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesians. You know, you, you, some of you read the book of Ephesians. The backstory is in, in Acts 20. Paul spends time with the Ephesians. They love Paul. They love his ministry. And he tells them, I'm not going to see you again. And this goodbye service uh, where they are hugging Paul, kissing Paul, and Luke tells us they wept. They wept at the idea they're never going to see Paul again. You know what that meeting was? It wasn't a dinner at a restaurant. It was a prayer meeting. They prayed together for the farewell. Similarly, when Paul is at Tyre, when he's at Tyre, he also tells, say, says goodbye to the church there. And this is chapter 21. And you, can, you can flip there. In chapter 21, he's saying goodbye to the believers at Tyre. And they're on the beach. Paul is about to board the ship to take off. And they're all on the beach saying goodbye to Paul, praying. And they kneel on the sand of the beach praying in this farewell. And you know who's there? The men, the women, and the children. How many of us would even think to bring a child to a prayer meeting? But, but think about it. When does the child start going to prayer meetings? 13? 18? 25? Some of us can't even ask the question because we don't go to prayer meetings. That means your child will never go to prayer meeting unless God does an individual work in them, but it won't be because we train them. 
Some of us will go to a prayer meeting, but we leave the kids at home, get the kids busy with something, give them a coloring book, stick them in a corner. They're on the beach kneeling with the parents. We're kind of far from that as a church. Are you scared of 21? You should be. Let's pray. Let's pray. We don't have to kneel on the sand of a beach. We don't have to run from Roman officers threatening our lives. But we can be prayerful. Peter is a prayerful man. He prays to raise Tabitha from the dead in chapter 9. When he gets his vision that uh, from about the food, right, communicating to Peter that the Gentile food, we can eat that. And what he's communicating to Peter is there's not a divide between the Jews and the Gentiles anymore. He communicates that to Peter in Peter's prayer time. Peter's praying when that happens. Meanwhile, he's hooked up with Cornelius, isn't he? And it's the, it's the relationship between Peter and Cornelius that sort of demonstrates to the church that what Jesus did on the cross lowers the divide between Jews and Gentiles. There's no racial, ethnic, or religious divide between people anymore. Everyone's one in Christ. What an amazing truth we all need to bank on. And the reason why that happened is because Peter was in his personal prayer time when he received the vision, and the reason why God used Cornelius, the text tells us Cornelius was a devout man who was continually praying to God. And Luke tells us, and his prayers were heard. Some of you may feel like, well, I tried praying, and I I feel like my prayers aren't heard. Maybe you're not devout. Some of us are still... You know, kind of like selfish jerks, and we pray when we want something, and the rest of the time, God doesn't get the time of day. Cornelius' prayers were heard because he was a devout man, and he continually prayed. It doesn't say he got everything he wanted, but he was a prayerful man. And because he was devout and prayerful, fearing God, God often would give him the prayers that he answered. And God used Cornelius to team up with, to connect with Peter, to reveal to the church that amazing truth about unity that we need. I want you to turn now to chapter 12. Because prayer is effective, we need to devote ourselves to it. When you go to Acts chapter 12, we see that prayer in action. I love this passage The heat is coming on the church. It says in verse 1, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So he killed James. He sees that that's kind of a popular move. Well, let me get Peter now. This is a thing. I can be popular with this. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 4, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. A little exaggerated. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, comma, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Peter is then miraculously released from prison. And you see what Luke is doing. Peter didn't get out because he was slick. Peter didn't get out because of his negotiation skills. Peter didn't get out because he knew the right guy in the right place at the right time. He got out because the church was praying. That's why. Now, that doesn't mean the church always gets what they want. James is dead. You, you can, it doesn't tell us they prayed for James, but I don't It doesn't seem to make sense to me that this prayerful, praying church started off the founding of the church with prayer. They're constantly on their way to a prayer meeting, coming from a prayer meeting, or in a prayer meeting. And when James is in trouble, they're like, oh yeah, we forgot to pray. Probably not. Probably they prayed for James, and God was like, no, for that one, but yes, for Peter. And it's up to God to answer how he wants to answer, but our responsibility is to be that praying church. Because when we're a praying church, miraculous things happen. God does things through praying churches. And if we're not one, he'll use another one. That's God's MO. 
Another miraculous prison escape happens in chapter 16. You might remember where Paul and Silas are miraculously rescued. And what are they doing when they're rescued? They're praying and singing hymns to God. They're praying and singing hymns to God. In chapter 16, verse 25, then they're rescued. I wonder, church, if part of our struggle with prayerfulness is we don't experience the desperation. We don't have elders or pastors in jail. We don't have family members that are facing execution because they're, they were preaching the gospel. We don't face that kind of persecution. Are, are we really ready for it? Are we ready for that? We won't be if we're not prayerful. So I think one of the things you need to do is recognize desperation where you see it. Does the virus stuff make you anxious? Great. Maybe it doesn't make some of us as anxious as others, but take that to the Lord. <laughs> Let that drive prayer for you. Because it's when you're desperate that you pray most. Uh, have any of you, I don't want to ask a show of hands, have you ever traveled to another country or maybe another place in this country that is poorer? Have you attended a poor church? Do you feel the difference? They're loud, they're clapping, they're hugging, they're kissing, they're praying. Everyone's praying at the same time. And then you're more educated, comfortable churches, suburban churches. They're quiet, laid back, it's reserved, we're studious, pull out our pens and take our notes for the sermon. And now they might be lacking the study part. Oftentimes, maybe they can't. They don't have the resources, the education, the tools. Their pastors oftentimes aren't seminary educated. They can't they get into the Greek, and it's a, oftentimes it's a resource thing. But when we puff ourselves up with knowledge, we tend to leave behind the desperation piece. We're not desperate because we're not poor. Here you have Christians that are getting chased jailed, and killed, and they pray. And I, I, I think the two go together. And so we ne might need to find the, the, the pressure points in our lives, and instead of trying to resist them or escape them, go, okay, I need pressure points because I need something to drive me to prayer. If I don't have any pressure points, I'm not going to be driven to prayer. Why? Because I'm a broken human being that needs to mature. All of us are. So allow those pressure points to be that point of desperation for you to drive you into prayer I didn't jot this down but Luke tells us that they they counted it uh, a joyous thing to be persecuted I get to be persecuted that's amazing so we embrace it we should embrace it so that it can drive us to prayer and we should pray so that we can embrace it with boldness. Prayer makes ministry effective, and because prayer makes ministry effective, prayer makes a church powerful. Prayer makes a church what it's supposed to be. A successful church is a praying church, and because of that, we should devote ourselves to prayer. We might think about our prayer meetings on Sunday mornings rather than add-ons or that thing that's in the bulletin that our eyes don't see anymore because it's been in the bulletin for so many years. What if we changed our minds from church starts at 10 to church starts at 9.30? I mean, I've, I haven't shared this with the elders. Sorry, I'm just going to throw it out there. I, I sometimes, I'm tempted to like, let's take prayer from 9.30 and stick it in the service. 15 minutes of corporate prayer right in the middle of the service. You don't like it? Find another church. We're going to be a praying church. What if we did that? When we're not receiving for a whole 15 minutes in the middle of a service, we're not, we're not receiving, we're asked to give. We're asked to do something. We're asked to participate in prayer together. Well, it would be a struggle, wouldn't it? Let's, let's be honest. Let's just be too, it would be a struggle. Some of us would fall asleep. We stayed up too late Saturday, right? Because it takes commitment. That's why it says devoted to prayer, not accidentally stumbled upon prayer. How do you devote yourself to something? Some of you have New Year's resolutions. You're like, ah, oh, I'm going to get fit. Which are, what, when is that going to actually stick? When you change the diet plan, not just in your mind. I think I'll have less carbs. 
How many less carbs? Do you have an app? Are you going to count it? Are you going to do portion size with your fists? You need something, some measure, to actually make that goal actionable. But what does it take if the church has a prayer meeting for 15 minutes compared to other churches, some of those desperate churches around the world I'm talking about? That's kind of an embarrassing length of time for a prayer meeting. 15 minutes. What would it take? Yeah, it would take getting out of the house earlier. It would take coming and having a 15-minute portion where you're not being given a sermon. There's no song. There's no handout to follow. It's the simplest of things. We're getting around together to pray. We don't have to kneel on the sands of a beach, and we don't have to do it in a cold jail cell strapped to chains. We do it in a climate-controlled environment with cushy seats. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Change your calendar. Change your morning routine. And let's get together and pray. Most excuses I've heard over the last 13 years, and some of them are my own, but they're lame. (laughs) They're lame. If a game is on, we'll make it. Right? If your career is on the line, you'll be there. If your boss says there's a meeting, you'll be there. But we have a bigger boss who says we're supposed to be doing this together. And do we leave that to other Christians? Right? We all have things going on. Some of you are like, oh, I'm old, I'm achy, it's hard to get up. Others are like, well, I have little kids. Well, when is it then? If you can't do it when you, before your kids because that's for older adults, and you can't do it when you have kids because you can't get out of the house in time, and you can't do it post-kids because you're too old, no one's ever going to pray. But you see, these families, husbands, wives, children, all kneeling on the beach just to say goodbye to Paul through prayer. That's amazing. I think we should take our lessons from the Bible about what prayer should look like and strive for that. But lest it feel too uh, one-sided, like me rebuking you, I take blame here. I take blame here because leaders need to model it. Leaders in the church need to model prayer in their personal lives, corporately, all of it. I want you to turn to chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We might go a little over our normal time today, but if there's ever a time, I think it's a message like this one. I really want this to sink in for us. You remember in chapter 6, I mean, look, right at the top in my translation, the the rubric, it says, um, in my Bible version, it says, seven chosen to serve. This is where the first deacons are installed And it says, in the days the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing, right? And certain Greek-speaking Christians, the Hellenists, were having an issue with the Jewish, the Jewish, the Hebrew-speaking Christians because their widows were being neglected, the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. They got everybody together and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So in other words, you want your elders, your leaders in the church, doing the ministry of the word of God and not getting bogged down in all the little admin stuff. Not because they're above admin stuff, but because that's what you want them paying attention to that. So let's the rest of us step up. Well, this was a little bit more than folding bulletins. This needed some effort and some help. And so they install what many... Christians believe are the first deacons. Some of you have been to churches where there's like the deacon of bulletins and the deacon of microphones, the deacon of setting the plates out. Well, not here. Here, it took us a while to get to deacons. Why? Look at the look at look at how they were installed. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men who are just kind of available. Well, no, of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I, and I think I don't quite have that where it needs to be. I'm, I'm devoted to the ministry of the word. But the fact that we have deacons now, the fact that 
I'm surrounded by other elders and we have so many great volunteers in this church means I should have more time for prayer and I need to lean into that. That's my work. That's what God has called me to do. And if I'm not modeling it, why should the church follow it? And if we're not a very praying church, it's my fault if I'm not leading the way. And so the very purpose, the reason why deacons even exist is so that elders can be praying. And the ministry of the word, of course. But then look, look at the deacons. The deacons are prayerful. It's not like the deacons are there to do a bunch of busy work, right? To be the Marthas running around so that the elders can be the Marys sitting at Jesus' feet just spending time in the word all day. The deacons are prayerful to the point that Stephen, one of those first deacons, he's full of grace and power in verse 8. He does great signs and wonders. He's, he's, a, he's a powerful deacon. Well, he gets stoned to death. He gets stoned to death. And how does he go out? He goes out praying in verse 54 of chapter 7. He gives a long sermon. And then in, cha- in verse 54 of chapter 7, uh, they're gnashing their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, And he said, he sees the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, stop their ears, they don't want to hear this. They rushed together at him, they cast him out of the city, stones him. What is that? Literally picking up stones and throwing them at him until he's dead. And the witnesses laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. You end up picking up on that later on. Saul gets converted. And then they were, as they were, verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't pray, God, please make them stop. Please save me. He's like, receive me. And then verse 60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a model of prayer that in the one moment in his life where the last thing you might be thinking is prayer, or you're getting bashed with rocks, he goes into a time of prayer. And in that prayer, he doesn't pray, Lord, save me. He's like, Lord, save them. There's a deacon to aspire to. The ministry of prayer is foundational to the church because it's foundational to the leaders of the church. You want to be a leader in the church? Be a praying person. Be a prayerful person. It's what elders do. It's what deacons do. And not just elders and deacons, not just officers in the church. We talked about Cornelius. Mark your Bibles, chapter 10, verse 2 and 4, those verses I talked to you about. He prayed continually to God. Cornelius wasn't a deacon. He wasn't an elder. He wasn't an apostle. He didn't plant a church. He's a dude. But he was devout. Why was he devout? He prayed all the time. And so God used Cornelius And God heard the prayers of Cornelius, chapter 10, verse 4. So prayer is foundational to the church. And I want you to understand how it's not just elders and deacons, it's you, right? You as a church have a kind of authority that, in a sense, precedes, really, any authority elders and deacons have. Because the church commissions leaders, and the church commissions leaders in prayers, last Pastor, I'll take you to chapter 13. Turn to Acts chapter 13. This is sort of an aspect of prayer that we can just kind of blow by. Yeah, elders should be praying. Yes, deacons should be praying. How do elders become elders? How do deacons become deacons? How do pastors become pastors? Well, it shouldn't be because they showed up to a church one day and said, God called me. I saw a vision. I saw a dream, and God called me in a ministry. Who else says? Nobody else says. I don't need anyone else to say it. God said it to me personally. And so I'm personally here to tell you I'm here to lead you as a church. No. There's this pattern of the church commissioning, the church choosing, the church laying hands on. You see right at the top of chapter 13, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These are real people, real names in history. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Saul is the Apostle Paul. If you've been around the Bible long enough, you've heard of Barnabas. These are star players in the beginning of the church. And the Holy Spirit tells the church to set them apart. Saul doesn't tell the church, hey, God called me. I don't care what you think. The church told Saul God called Saul. The church tells Barnabas God chose Barnabas. Why? Because the church is so smart? No, because the church is so prayerful. They didn't just commission them out of nowhere. What were they doing? It says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit revealed to them who to commission for the work. See that? Worshiping the Lord and fasting. Fasting is always wed with prayer in the Bible. You, you, know, you don't just fast by skipping meals. It's skipping meals to pray, to be prayerful. And this prayerful church is able to commission and set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work. The Holy Spirit revealed to the church who to commission for ministry because that church was a worshiping and fasting church. Verse 3, then after fasting and praying, so there's the proof that praying goes with the fasting. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Then what happened? Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the church, no, Acts 13, 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Wait, Luke, you just said the church sent them out. Yeah. The Holy Spirit used a praying church to send out Saul and Barnabas. See, that's, that's the value of a prayer meeting. That's why we can't just be like, well, the elders get to pray. The church needs it. I need it. You know, like, am I commissioned? Am I sent by you to do whatever I do at Trinity? To do whatever I do when I'm having a meal with someone that doesn't know the Lord or needs encouragement? When I sit to counsel somebody, I need you to be a church that prayerfully sends me to do that. You're the church, not the elders or the deacons. We're servants, and we lead by example. But what we're leading by example is that prayerfulness that needs to be at the, the foundational level of what a church really is. The elders are appointed the same way in chapter 14. You don't have to turn there, but in chapter 14, we see why, right? Paul is stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. Throw him outside the city, leave him for dead. Oh, he's not dead. <laughs> He gets up, he's obviously battered, and then he, what does he do next? He and Barnabas install elders, but he tells the elders, listen to me, listen to me. You're going to be an elder in the church? You're going to be an elder in the church? Listen to me. You will only enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. That's 1422. Then they commission those elders through prayer. See? So there's the desperation together with the prayerfulness. Too many of us sign up for seminary too quickly. Too many of us aspire maybe to be elders too quickly. Some of us maybe are elders, and we've left something important behind. If we're going to be doing ministry, it's a challenge. And we need to be ready to die for this. None of us are going to be that kind of elder. None of us will be that kind of deacon. None of you will be that kind of growth group leader. You'll never be that kind of dad or that kind of mom without prayer. You think you're courageous, you know, with your NRA stickers and your guns in the safe. You're nothing. You are nothing. And you will get crushed and you will crumble when real persecution comes if prayer isn't there to give you the boldness that these Christians had at the beginning of the church. We are arrogant when we don't pray. Because we're banking on our own boldness. We're banking on our own comforts. It's a kind of arrogance when we are not prayerful. The churches pray, the churches fast, and that's how they commission people to ministry. I think for many of us, we overly privatize prayer. We're good because we have a quiet time. Look up quiet time in the Bible. We're quick to say, well, Jesus retreated. Peter was on the rooftop. But we don't pay attention to how many times the Bible talks about corporate prayer. Private prayer is important.
I don't know, it's kind of an American thing to be like, oh, I'm on my own. I pray in my closet. I pray by myself. I pray in the car. I pray in the shower. I pray in the gym. I pray by myself, by myself, by myself. When was the last time you got together with people? And it's like, well, I don't pray out loud. Learn. Learn. Teach your kids. Don't let your kids do that. Don't do the pinky thing. Oh, I don't get to pray. Be like, I get to pray. Can we develop that culture in our families? And there don't have to be long prayers. There don't have to be flowery prayers. They don't have to have big theological words in them. God, thank you that you love us. Will you help me? Will you help me love other people? It's not hard. So let's smash the excuses and develop corporate prayer around our tables, around the Christmas tree. Maybe before diving, I know that's probably, it's too late now, unless you got a really weird tradition. But before diving into the present, maybe take a, take a moment, let's pray. Let's pray together. Before anything big, going into work, hey, can you all pray with me really quick? Prayer is foundational to the church. Now, here's one thing I need to make clear really quickly. When you're reading through the book of Acts, there's a lot of stuff going on, and not all of it are things that we're supposed to be doing. They cast lots to choose an apostle. Should we cast lots to choose uh, an elder? Right? Um, there's raising of the dead. If one of you has a family member that dies, should you invite me over, inspect me to pray, and then they come back to life, and let's have dinner? There's a lot of things going on in the book of Acts that we sort of instinctually know, well, that's not what we're supposed to be covering because it's a descriptive book. It doesn't sound like prescription. Do this, do that. It's not full of commands like when you read one of Paul's letters. Hey, church, do this, do that, be like this, right? Acts is like, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. And we have to sort of figure out which of those things that happened are we supposed to copy and which of those things are like, well, that was kind of a special thing. That's not always going to happen. Like somebody receiving Christ as Savior but getting baptized by the Spirit later. I don't think that's normal, right? That was for the Samaritans. So there are things that we are supposed to copy, other things that aren't there for us to copy. How can you tell the difference? That's a whole other sermon or CFC course, but here's a really quick tip. If it matches clear prescriptive commands in other places in Scripture, you're supposed to do that. So, for instance, when Paul writes to Colossians in chapter 4, he commands them continually, continue steadfastly in prayer. When he writes to Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 17, 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. In Luke 18, you remember Jesus has this parable about uh, approaching the Father in prayer, and he tells the parable to the effect that they ought not to, uh, that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus is teaching the parable so that they always pray. You remember the Lord's Prayer, which could be called the Disciples' Prayer, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. He gives that because the disciples ask him, teach us to pray. Jesus doesn't go, well, no, no, you don't have to pray. That's just for me, or that's just for certain people. No, he says, yeah, when you pray, pray like this. Why? Because you should be praying. And notice it doesn't say, my Father in Heaven. Our Father Built into the Lord's Prayer is corporate prayer, not private prayer. You can pray the Lord's Prayer privately, but it's designed for disciples, plural, to pray it together. They didn't say, Lord, teach us individually to pray. Teach us to pray. How do we pray when we get together praying? We love to quote Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. Yeah, that's a prayer meeting. And maybe some of us are like, oh, I pray, but Jesus, you know, I feel like God's not doing anything. Do you only pray privately? Have you brought that to anybody else? Well, I don't want to take that to anybody else because, see, there's the problem. We don't confess to one another. We don't bear one another's burdens. We're not honest with one another. We kind of are tempted to play church. See, the reason why this is easy is because you're all facing one direction and one person's doing the talking. That's easy. You show up, take some notes. Yeah, in the lobby, you have to, you know, maybe not have to. We enjoy, you know, greeting each other as best we can through mass and fist bumps and elbows and you don't know who to hug anymore. But it lasts, you know, 15 minutes, and then you go. There's not a lot being laid on the line, right? And as I look at you, there's deep struggles. There's deep struggles. And I don't know the half, probably. We need to bring those together in prayer. That's that's part of the the power of praying together. Growth groups, if our growth groups spend 90% just talking about a textual thing and one question, you know, that's really tough, and let's untangle that. And then, oh, shoot, oh, let's, let's pray real quick. Let, let's not do that. 
Let's create space for prayer. Skip a question or two and create space for prayer there because corporate prayer is foundational to the church. You know, God has communicated to us in Scripture the meaning, real meaning of Christmas, right? Jesus came down, love came down to birth love in us, and one of the ways we love each other, love God and love the world, is to be a prayerful church. We pray when we sing, we pray when we pray together, yes, and we pray on our own. But if we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, we need to be a praying church. I'm not going to stand up here and take literal attendance. Can I just be honest? I do take note of who's here and not here on Sunday mornings. We used to have once a month on Fridays. For whatever reason, the attendance dwindled. Dwindled. There was a couple times where I was there and I was like, I, I guess we're not having a prayer meeting today. And I get it. Life is busy. There's work. We're tired. It's Friday night. I understand. So then I thought, well, let's just start with Sunday mornings. Let's get there, Sunday mornings. And I've been pleased that it's not just people who have to be here because of worship team, people who have to be here because we're serving in some way. There are some who come and sit and pray with us even though they don't have to be here at 9.30. I want to see more of that. When it's not your turn on the worship team, pray. let's pray. We don't only pray when it's time to serve, right? We pray because we're supposed to be a praying church. Some of us need to go home and sit with our wives or husbands and figure out a family routine that facilitates being here on time to pray together for 15 minutes. Then we get a 15-minute break, use the restroom, say hi, grab your stuff, get your water, whatever you need to do, turn off your cell phones, right? And then we reconvene at 10. Let's try that. Let's see if we can fill this place at 930, right, with prayer so that the church can be what it's supposed to be. I cannot do it. The elders can't do it. The deacons can't do it. You can't do it. Let's support this chair, this church through prayerfulness for the church. Prayer meetings aren't always going to be, I get to bring my requests. You might have to leave some of your personal requests to the side for a minute, and we pray corporately for corporate matters. That doesn't mean we can't pray for individual requests, but there's going to be an emphasis, I think, of praying for the church, praying for the ministry of the church, help us to be powerful witnesses in this world, Bold witnesses, even as it gets more and more difficult to be a Christian. We pray for our families. We pray for this next generation of children so that they can leave the house ready, ready to be Christians in this world. And we need Jesus Christ to do that in us. Let's pray. Father, as we close in this song, we're thankful to you that you didn't wait for us to mature enough to come to you, uh, to figure it out and come to you. But you, you came to us. You reached out to us with your love to change us and to change our hearts. And Father, many times we are still focused on other things, the easy things, the actionable things, and it's hard to be prayerful. Uh, but Father, we pray that you would develop that in us. I pray that you would develop that in me. Help me to be a model of it, to lead it, to showcase it, to demonstrate it. Uh, I pray that for the elders, that we would prioritize prayer, not just have books on our shelves, but to spend time praying. I pray that for our deacons, that they wouldn't just be busy going about trying to fix things and accommodate things for people, as crucial as it is, but they, they would be men of prayer. I pray, Father, for our dads. I pray for our moms in this room that the mainstay of their parenting wouldn't be education, manners, how to dress, relational issues, but prayerfulness. That they would pray for their children, pray over their children, pray with their children, and teach them how to pray. I pray for our youth that they wouldn't wait to get prayerful some other time in life, that they would do what it takes to get here to pray together with others and not wait on that. Now, Father, I pray for our seniors that as they are in a different time of life that a lot of us are looking ahead to, that they would be models of prayer, the kind of models that we can see. 
as they pray together with us. Um, Father, we pray that as we do that as a church, that we would see a difference. That we would see that you are moving, you are doing things that you otherwise wouldn't do if we weren't a prayerful church. We pray for our ministries, whether it be to pregnant moms or to uh, newcomers in the church that are, have just moved here or whatever the case may be to each other. Father, we pray that you would be the source of power, not our skills. Bring us to the place we need to be to be that kind of church. Father, we ask you for it as we close in the song. Massage it into our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close?